I want to remind you of what we've seen so far in Isaiah 53, because some of you I know don't remember all the great details I've given you over the past two months. Unfortunately, um, you forget, right? I forget what I did yesterday. So each time we come to God's word, we need to remind ourselves what we've seen so far. And I want you to remember that what we've seen in Isaiah 53 is that this servant, the suffering servant, is the arm of the Lord, which in the previous chapter is said to bring about the salvation of God's people. So this focus on the servant here, he is the one who will accomplish God's purpose. So far, we've seen how he will be treated. We see when all is said and done, he'll be exalted, but first he must go through a period of humiliation. We've seen that he would be rejected by men. We've seen his function, that he was here to die for the people and take on their sins. And this morning, we come to our next passage where we will see something else about this great servant. So in Isaiah 53, let me read for us from verse 7 to verse 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The word of the Lord. Throughout the history of the world, there have always been those who oppress other human beings. It is a part of the sinful nature of men that the dominant seek to take advantage of the weak. This should not surprise us. This is the nature that we have to take advantage of other people. There's something instinctive in our sinfulness that wants to bless ourselves more than those around us, those who are different from us. We've seen these with individual, individuals being pressed, but also people groups. One nation or one people group or one tribe will come against the other and they will dominate the other. And if they defeat the other, then they will use them for their advantage. When it comes to Jesus Christ, this is the greatest expression of one being oppressed, one being different, one being pushed to the outer limits of the people. He would be oppressed in ways that the mind can't fully understand to the depths of suffering beyond our comprehension. But there's something different about this oppression. There's something about this one man 
who is oppressed, and he is oppressed for all the people in this world who know the oppression of sin and who see it, who see it very clearly within themselves. And they see how their sin affects those around us, how they use their sin to take advantage of the other. Whether it's husbands and wives or children towards parents or officials towards the citizens or the rich to the poor, it doesn't matter. Every one of us seek to take advantage of the other person in such a way that oppresses them and exalts ourselves. What's different here is that while most oppression, in fact, I would say all oppression, is something that we would not choose to go through, this savior, this servant, chose to be oppressed. Let's see that in this passage as we look, number one, at the willingness of the servant. First, Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord would be oppressed and afflicted. We see that in verse seven. And this language of oppression and affliction in the original, it has the connotation, the idea of violence to oppress someone, to afflict them in a violent manner. The idea is the lashing out and the purpose of, of tearing someone down in a physical and yet mental and psychological manner. We need to remember that oppression affects the whole of the person. He was oppressed in every possible way and afflicted. And this verse shows us what's going on. As we move on, we see that yet he did not open his mouth. Why? Because he was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. A lamb has no idea. Has no idea of the reality that's coming towards him. But the servant does. The similarity, though, is that as he goes without a word... He knows what's coming. The lamb doesn't. The verse simply points to the willingness of the servant to receive his fate. He's not a victim. That's often how he is portrayed to the world. And don't get me wrong, he is a victim in the sense of not deserving of this, but he is a, an active participating victim who says, thy will be done, Lord. And he sets off to do whatever his father has purposed. He's not a victim. Not in the sense of his control over everything in his own situation. You see this in his life when the, uh, the Pharisees and the, the mob go out to gather around him to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. That passage in John 18 is one of the ones that have struck me throughout the years when, I've, when I first realized what it said. 
it, it blew me away and it has impacted me to this very day. We're told that they came and they surrounded Jesus and he said to them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And then John records, and the crowd drew back and fell to the ground. The word of God incarnate spoke the word of God and simply said his name, I am, and he knocked them to the ground. This shows that this one here, while he is a victim at the hands of men, he actively gave himself. His willingness is here. And this willingness, it it has to stagger us. How many of us, how many of us would be in such control of the situation that we just fully and willingly yield ourselves to what God has purpose? When, When we look at our own lives, And we go through the purposes of God in our lives. Are we willing to go through those things completely? The servant accepts what God gives. The servant knows exactly the reality of whatever my God ordains is right. Jesus knew what he was willing to do. And we're told in the gospels that as he was being hurled accusation after after accusation upon him, we're told that he never defended himself. He was righteous, he was just, he was without fault and yet he accepted, he accepted the purpose of his father that no matter how innocent he was, no matter how much evidence was brought forward to say that he is innocent, it wasn't going to change a thing. Godless men were going to put him to death. And the will of the Lord was going to prosper. It's important, so important for us as, as human beings to see the willingness of our Savior here. His willingness to save us. His willingness to give his life for human beings, for sinners. Not the righteous. Not those who see themselves as doing pretty good in life. Not those who say, I am doing well. I'm keeping God's word. I proclaim that I am a Christian. And yet in themselves, they are full of themselves. They're full of what they do. They say, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like them. Rather than seeing that in themselves dwells no good thing, and they're like the publican standing in the back, beating his chest, not even lifting up his eyes, saying, be merciful to me. He came for sinners. And he died as though he were guilty. As though he were the greatest sinner in the world. Even though 
he was righteous. This willingness has a significant application. And it's this, do you think that Jesus Christ would be unwilling to save you? So many human beings and so many even professing Christians look at themselves and saying, how can the Lord actually save me? Doubting salvation, if I came to him, would he really be willing? He may just say, you know, you're too, work, you're too bad and, and push you out. And, and the reality is, is that if it, Christ our Savior gave himself to this degree willingly, completely, and he was not, he was not simply a victim. He was a part of the purpose in choosing his Father's will. Does that not logically lead to the fact that he is willing to save you? That he's willing to take your sins away, to take your guilt away, to take everything you have done and everything you will do that is impure and defiled in God's sight, which is everything. Even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. He doesn't care about your church membership. He doesn't care about your position in the community. He doesn't care how many things you have done for other people. That does not matter to him because looking at those things, he sees putrid, wretched evil because our hearts are far from him. And so he has to willingly give in order to receive those who will throw themselves on his mercy. He's willing. The problem is, is that if you won't come to him or if you resist coming to him, the problem is it's not his willingness, it's your willingness. Doesn't matter with him. He's willing. The cross proves it. Don't be unwilling. Don't harden your hearts while there's today. We see as well, not simply the willingness of the Savior, but his undeserved death. By oppression, verse 8, and a judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. In this verse, the death of the servant comes into view. This idea of being taken away is the idea of his, his person, all that he is taken away. It is death that's in view. That much is clear, but unfortunately the rest of the verse isn't. The rest of the verse is one of those things that Old Testament professors pull their hair out over because it's so difficult to translate what exactly is meant here. But here's the point, which we can always get. No matter how difficult to translate, we can always get the point. And the point is this, that those he came to in that day and those who saw him die 
they must understood the purpose of his death. That's it. Who considered what was going on here? None of them. They didn't know exactly what was going on. They didn't realize that he was suffering for others, suffering for them. They didn't realize that he didn't deserve it. We're told that there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 9, that he had done no violence. He didn't deserve what he went through. If anybody lived on this earth and never deserved any type of punishment for anything, the reality is, is there is no one until God himself takes on humanity. And the human being, Jesus, God incarnate, he lives the perfect life. Remember the perfect life doesn't mean the enjoyable life. The reason he was treated this way was for the benefit of the people of God. Isaiah says my people for the benefit of my people. This idea of the being stricken for the transgression of my people. This word stricken is the idea of a blow, for the blow of my people, for the striking of my people, which is the image of a judge, a king, striking down his enemies. He was struck for the law breaking of my people. You know, this is what helps us to see here that because he suffered what was not deserved, the believer receives what they do not deserve. He suffers for what he did not deserve, and we thrive for what we do not deserve. Grace is what you have. If you know Jesus Christ, you know grace, you know mercy. That's what you know, forgiveness. You have heaven. You have Christ himself, God. Who looks at you and says, you are mine. If you have him, he says, you are mine. You're great. You're fantastic. You are the one I love. I see you. I know you. I know everything about you. And I love you. He sees that because he is that. And he clothes you with himself. When you're sitting there looking at yourself and you're saying, man... I am terrible. First of all, if you look at yourself and say, man, I'm pretty good, you're the one with the issue. But if you look at yourself and say, what was me? I'm undone before a holy God. There's nothing, I realize there's nothing that I can do unless, unless he does it for me. 
and I ask him to do so, and he has. The believer has it made. Now that's, we have to, we have to tweak, tweak our understanding of what that means. Usually when we say when somebody has it made, we're saying that somebody's living on easy street. We have all of these expressions that say the same things, don't they? It's not that. We have it made in the sense of we receive glory instead of hell. Got it made. So that means this small time in the context of eternity. You've been given an eternal life with God where there is no suffering, there is no pain, there is only joy. You know that no matter what happens in this time span, something better is coming. Now, not only that, you have that something better now. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Sometimes we as Christians sound more like the children of Israel in the wilderness. The grumblers, right? The complainers. I think we all know people who who are like that. People that we say, you know, they're not happy unless they're miserable. The same is true for our own hearts, grumbling. You look at Jesus here, he didn't grumble. He didn't grumble, he didn't complain. He did willingly. He didn't deserve this death. And he accepted this undeserved death without saying that he should not be here. He never said, let me go. There was never a complaint on his lips. You know, when a person sees this, when they really understand what he went through and he did it without complaining, you can tell. You can tell that certain believers you've been around and they're suffering. You go there to try to encourage them and you walk away more encouraged than, than you were before because their hope, their thought process, their idea of My Savior suffered for me. And therefore I accept what he gives. And trust that he does it for good because he's good. The only remedy for a complaining heart is looking clearly with the heart, with the heart of faith at the cross of Christ. If you look at him suffering, dying, in the darkness of the day and the darkness of his soul, having sin poured upon him, God making him who knew no sin to be sin, that's the remedy for a complaining heart. 
That makes everything else in our lives look very small and temporary. Is that easy to do? No, but what do we do? We have to look at him. Thirdly, we see his innocence. The servant's undeserved death is explained in verse 9, and his innocence is highlighted. And they they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. At the beginning of verse 9, we see this. They made his grave with the wicked, meaning that his death would be with the context or with those who are the wicked. In the view of, of the people of that day, the idea was there is the righteous and there are the wicked. That's it. There's a separation. Those who know God and follow him and those who do not. That's the categorical place in which the Psalms, in which the Proverbs look at people. He and his grave was not in the sense of dying with the righteous. His death was with the wicked. God condemned him as wicked, even though he was innocent. There's something else here that symbolizes this at the cross. Who did he hang between? Two sinners. Two robbers were told, but that idea of robbers, that wasn't simply the idea of a thief. That was the idea of an insurrectionist, somebody who rebelled and sought to to fight against the powers of that day. Full rebels. Full rebels just like us. Rebels against God. He made his grave among them. And you can even see this in the repentant thief. He knew there was something about this man. He was dying with them, but what did he say? We're getting what we deserve, and he is not. But notice that even in the horror of what he would receive, there is an element of honor. With a rich man in his death. That's one of those statements in the Old Testament pointing to Christ. It's it's just too good to be be true, you know? With the rich man in his death. What could this be other than the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had just carved a rich man and he had seen no death yet. As Charles Spurgeon once said, this is a kingly cave. It's fit for a king. And so God even honored him in his death. Why? Because the verse continues, there's innocence No violence done. His actions were only good towards other people. You never saw him act in a harmful way towards anyone. 
There was no deceit in his mouth. There was no words that came out that weren't true. He only spoke truth and he spoke it in such a wonderfully gracious way, especially to those who were really wrong, right? The sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those who are really wrong. He treated others with grace. His words were gracious. His heart was pure. It was true. When you look inside and you see your heart, doesn't it, doesn't it confound you? That there are so many contradictions in there. There's love, there's hate. And both are shown to the same people. There's the desire for righteousness and that lust for evil. Walking contradictions. I think I used the Almond Joy commercial last time, didn't I? No? Well, good, good. I'm going to use it this time. The old Almond Joy commercial with mounds. Sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. That's the contradictory nature, back and forth, back and forth. Paul said this, didn't he? He said this in the book of Romans. He said, that which I desire to do, I don't do. And that what I don't want to do, I do. He says, I find these two things waging war within me. And those who see that are blessed. Because they have a savior whose heart is pure. There is no warring. There was no warring inside of Jesus' heart. There was a straight, pure love of God and love of his fellow man. That is why you need him. Because no matter what you do, you know within you is a crazy, truly schizophrenic heart that goes from one extreme to another depending on the day. You need a savior who's stable and not just stable, who's pure. This one was innocent, pure. And yet he died for the guilty. Peter makes a significant application from this verse. In 1 Peter 2, he says this. He's speaking to Christian. He says, for you have been called because Christ has also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Though he suffered, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself unto him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What is Peter saying? He's saying Christ not only died for our sins, he died for our sins to change us forever. 
to renew us in his image and to make us continually learn what it means to die to sin, which implies this. Sin is always going to be there. And the Christian over time sees more of it and more of it and more of it in their lives. And their attitude towards it changes more and more and more. They know they can't get rid of it. They know they can't hope to be pure in this life and they realize that's why they need their savior and they cling to him all the more and as they cling to him and they look to him they start becoming more like him in their words and in their actions. He left you an example that you might follow in his steps. If you are a Christian, then you must learn, maybe little by little, maybe incrementally, maybe progressively, sure, we all learn that way. You must learn how to suffer, how to suffer for Christ's sake as he conforms you righteously to his image. There's something different about this man. History has never seen anyone like this. No human being has ever looked like this because this is not what we are in our fallen nature. This is what God is. This is what God is in all his righteous glory. And he's the one you need. Life depends on it. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your mercy. We ask that you would help us to trust more and lean more and throw ourselves more on the mercy of our Savior and to see that it is your desire so that we might come freely to you and know you as Father. In Jesus' name, amen.